Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus as we continue our sermon series in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt under the guidance of Moses and more importantly of God himself. Uh, Every story, every book has its context and uh, many scholars believe that Exodus was written while the Israelites were in Exodus, wandering in the wilderness, especially for those who had been born in the wilderness and had not seen the things that God had done to sort of explain to them uh, the family story. How, how did we come to be living here in the wilderness? Uh, so if you could, I invite you this morning to imagine the story from their perspective as those uh, born in the wilderness, wondering what is our family story? And we hear this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and all the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned." When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt, the children of Israel, out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Uh, What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Nathaniel. All right, Exodus part two. Uh, Here we go. Buckle up. Um, Let's take a moment and let's thank our God for his word. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that you have called us to be like children. And unless we become like children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. So we ask, Lord, you'd give us the heart and mind and ears of a child, that we would be teachable, we'd be listening, that these words would be vital for us. Thank you. Uh, help us grasp your greatness. Help us taste of your glory. Help us see your wonder. Father, our need brings us to this moment in in this worship service. Uh, Be with us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I'm reminded as we get going here uh, of um, the Food Channel. I'm always doing food uh, illustrations, so we might as well get this out of the way. Um, Bobby Flay, he does a couple of those food shows, right? Some of you looking at me, yep, that's right. So Bobby Flay is the one who interviews the potential new uh, chefs who are coming up in the food world. He's the one who finds out whether or not they've got the, the, the ability to be on camera and talk about food. And so the test that he gives them, he, they're on camera, and Bobby Flay, it's his job to figure out, have I got a real chef here, a TV chef? So he throws them a lemon and says, tell me everything you know about a lemon for five minutes. Go. And now this potential hot chef has got to talk about lemons. Now, I imagine in the food world, you can do a lot with lemons, right? But when it's really on and the heat of the light and the cameras is on, can you really speak about lemons and do that well for five minutes, right? Well, this passage is like tossing a a pastor who loves the Bible a lemon and saying, go at it. There's a lot to say about it. There's a lot here. There's great, great stuff. Those of you who are uh, believers here and you know what's going on, this is like one of the top ten moments in the whole Bible. 
God reveals himself to Moses, and he reveals himself in this special name. And so this is just an extraordinary place in the Bible. And so may God richly bless us as we explore this. And I want to say right up front, as wonderful as this is, I'll mention this again in, in this message, as wonderful as this passage is, I want you to know that we are actually to turn away from it. We're actually to say it was great and glorious in its moment, but we're actually to to focus on the coming of Christ, this greater blazing glory. And the book of Hebrews tells us right away, and we want to get this as a sense as a church, how we look at the Bible, how we preach about it, what do we teach about it. The book of Hebrews says, Long ago, in many ways and many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's like the burning bush, right? Long ago, God spoke in various ways through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So as we think about the Bible, the whole book, this incredible Bible that is bound, we, we have God's inscripturated will. We, we know his will. This book is bound. We would say there are no more burning bushes that we can expect. We have God's revelation, and the ultimate culmination of God's revelation is Christ. And so would you, as you listen to this, would you pray that I could reveal by his sheer mercy Christ, who really is the focus of this amazing, amazing book. Now, one of the most unique things about modern people or postmodern people is that we assume we can know anything. We can know all kinds of technology brings us stuff, uh, brings us information, and we assume that we can know anything. For instance, even ideas about God. We can actually enter into knowledge of God, the true and living God. And actually, the the truth is, we don't really want this knowledge. And so we are dependent upon God to reveal himself to us. And so this extraordinary drama takes place on the backside of the desert. And we know that Moses has been, it has been a, a refugee on the backside of the desert. And we didn't read that part of it. But Moses actually commits manslaughter. He divide, he's breaking up two Israelites. And uh, in the process, he, excuse me, he, he's breaking up a fight between an Egyptian and an Israelite. And he, he breaks up this fight. And in the process, he actually kills an Egyptian. And the next day, he's wandering around the place where the Israelites were living, and uh, he sees two Israelites fighting, and then he comes to break up that fight, and one of of them turns and says, oh, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And so Moses realizes that this this, uh, act of his was now spreading throughout the whole land, and he takes off and runs. Uh, He runs away. And so he's a refugee here on the backside of the desert. He actually uh, gets married and has a son. And now he's, just a, he's more like a shepherd there, uh, just sort of in, in limbo, just waiting around. What, what's next for his life? He longs to get back to Egypt. In fact, names his first son foreigner, meaning reflect, reflecting that he even senses that he's a foreigner out in the desert. And now God moves and God is listening and he hears the cry of his people. He hears their enslavement, he hears of their pain, he hears their cries, and God begins to move. And so it's extraordinary that we have this revelation of the living God. And in world history, this is one of the great moments in world history. This is going to deliver people from the the fate of the gods, the whim of the gods, of 10,000 gods and who knows what's happening in the world. This is the true and living God who's going to reveal himself and going to present order to the world and deliver people from darkness. This will have huge, a huge impact on the development of civilization, particularly Western civilization, as it moves into Europe. And so we have now God appearing 
And this designation is giving to him, given to him. He's called the angel of the Lord, if you notice that phrase right there in verse 2 of chapter 3. And that might throw some of us off. But the, the idea behind this is that God manifests himself in some way, shape, or form and uses this term consistently of himself. And it's sort of a, that's just how it works. That's the way it is. And God uses this term, the angel of the Lord. But we, we will learn quickly that this is not an angel speaking. This is actually God speaking. And God speaks to Moses, this refugee, in personal language, knows his name, calls out to him twice, Moses, Moses. And Moses realizes he's having a very unusual encounter. He's drawn into it. And the, the first instruction he hears is to remove the sandals from his feet. He's standing on holy ground. And as God explains that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses realizes that he is the God who is the creator, the one behind these great stories that uh, will become part of the book of Genesis. And Moses bows down in great fear. And then verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction. Literally, literally it means I have seeing, I have seen. God hears. He hears the cry of his people. And they are helpless in this despondency, and he moves. God is now going to move. Um, He knows their sufferings. Look at verse 8. I've come to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them into the promised land. Exodus chapters 3 through 14 reveal the power of this name. God will deliver, and as he delivers his people, he will show his great power, what this name can do. It is a name that comes into play responding to a certain situation. And what is the situation? Slavery. Slavery for them in, Israel, in, in Egypt years ago, and slavery for us today. Apart from the living God, knowing him, following him, being freed by him, you are enslaved. If you want to know the Bible's basic stance toward the, the Bible's basic view of the human situation, and that is one of enslavement. Now, what's going to happen here is that Moses is going to be authorized to be the deliverer. This second generation that's coming into the land of Canaan, they, they have been waiting around for their parents to die in the, in the wilderness. This second generation now has a lot to think about, and here, this is what they're thinking about. All this stuff that Moses gives us, the Mosaic Covenant, all the details that we have to obey, and that's all in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and all these other books, all this stuff, wow, it's a lot of work. And Moses is getting old, and why should we listen to him anyway as we go into the, land of, go into the promised land? Their, their concern is, what is the use of listening to Moses? Moses is telling them through this chapter, I am the authorized one. Your survival in, in Canaan is dependent upon your obedience to what I say. Moses is encountering this this living God through this burning bush, and God intends to reveal that he will judge Egypt and he will judge the tribes of Canaan. And Moses is being authorized. And as Moses listens to this and realizes that he is being asked to be the, the, the mediator, the deliverer, Moses then asks one of four questions. Today we'll have a chance to get to two of them. 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses is saying, how can I pull this off? How can I be successful? Moses is, is, is sort of a, has experimented with being a deliverer, and it didn't work out too well. And so he's asking, how does this really work, God? I, I, he doesn't feel like he's qualified. And God's response is, I will be with you, verse 12, I will be with you. God's answer is, I'll give you myself. And one of the signs that you'll know that I have been with you is that you will bring this people to this mountain, and that is most likely Mount Sinai, as God refers to it, and you will serve God on this mountain. It's also called, the mountain range is probably, is called Horeb, and you may have that as a reference occasionally in the book of Exodus. Your success relates directly to my power, and my power will be shown to you. My people will gather, and they will worship me. So Moses now is thinking through, well, I'm going to have to talk to the leaders of Israel. What will I say to them? And in verse 13, we hear these words. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What has he revealed about himself? And in the ancient world, here's what's going on with the world of the gods. If you knew the name of the god, you knew that god. You knew that god, his or her powers, goddess, powers, meaning you had access to the, this privileged name, and that brought you into that god's uh, plan, into knowledge of that god. So the name was very, very important. And, and uh, Moses now says, okay, who do I say is sending you? And now God answers in verse 14. He says this, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Now, does that get your mind moving? Like, what on earth is going on here? God responds with a verb. I am. Uh, The verb to be. Now, scholars have really searched what on earth is going on here. What, What does this name mean? A long, uh, a long history of discussion has uh, been going on about this name. And the verb could be understood or translated, I am the one who causes to be what is. I am the one who causes the future. I'm the one who causes the present. I am the cause of all things. Moses is asking, how will I be successful? And God gives him an answer. I am will be with you. The God who makes the future happen is the God who's going to be with you. You see, there's a strong future sense to this word. You know what happens in the whole Bible? In the, whole, the whole Bible can be summarized as this. God wins. That's the whole Bible. And right here, God reveals the name behind his winning ability. I am the God who can make things happen That's who I am. God will be what Israel needs in her deliverance. God will be an ever-present, most powerful verb. The answer says nothing about Moses, but everything about God. 
And as we go through this remarkable book, we're going to see the unveiling and the revelation of this incredible name. In fact, the name will get more glorious and more, more ex- expansive in its wonder as we see this God work. We are going to learn about this God through his actions. That God does not get tired. That God wants to bring a glorious deliverance to his people. God doesn't have to be regroup and think things over. God is going to be present in the future, and he will be present with his sovereign freedom. God is going to enter into the future and make it happen. Tell them that name, Moses. Give them that name. My name will be a verb that leads to action, and nothing can hold back my hand. God doesn't dwell in abstraction. God dwells in the real world of people's needs, and he moves to help them and deliver them. He makes blood from lambs powerful to protect Israel, and he pushes back water so Israel can walk on dry land. That is the I am sovereign free God that that Moses is being introduced to. And so God answers. In fact, the answer to who God is is sort of a threefold. God actually answers it three times. And he tells them, tell them that the Lord has sent you. And he continues on to explain this extraordinary name that will deliver the, the people of Israel. And so this is the moment in the book of Exodus. Who is sending me? The I am that I am is sending you. The one who moves into action. He's the God who will promise success and be able to deliver it. That's one of the unique things about God. He can predict the future and make it happen. Um, God has a monopoly on that. God does that because he does it. He, He owns all aspects of time, space, reality. So this divine name also claims all the possessions of this world. And in one sense, Egypt, Egypt has been getting free labor in that sense, right? They have these, this in, enslaved people, the Israelites. And God, who owns all things, will have the Egyptians give over their possessions before the Israelites leave Egypt. God will culminate his deliverance of the Egyptians with taking back his gold from them, and they will freely give it and be ready to get, be rid of the Israelites. Now, this is an amazing, mo- momentous event in biblical history. And if this is new to you, I, I hope this has an impact on you that you can sense, you can just sense how vital it is and how, how, how big it is. But as New Testament Christians, we're actually called to see it as glorious, but not that glorious. We're actually called to see how powerful God is, but it has, it has just a glimmer of power compared to the power that comes with Christ. God is sovereign, and he is powerful, and he will take his people out, and they will congregate under this mountain, and they will worship him. And the whole book of Exodus is presenting this great plan that God will be in the midst of his people without destroying them as sinners. He will figure a way out that his powerful presence can be right in the middle of the camp. His holiness can be right there, and they can be safe and approach him. That's the big picture of Exodus. 
God will control the future, make the future work for his purposes, that his people may worship him. That picture is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The Apostle Paul would say of this covenant, this is a, what's called the Mosaic Covenant. Paul would say it has glory, but there's a greater glory to come, and that is the covenant that's with Christ. Moses sees the glory of God in this bush, but it was only temporary. At one point himself, um, Mo- himself, Moses will come down from Mount Sinai, and he will have the glory of God shining on his face. But that, that will be temporary, and it will fade. Paul tells us that we as Christians are beholding not a bush in the desert, but the very glory of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. God revealed himself by his sovereign mercy to Moses and used a tree in the desert. And through his I am name, the one who is always present and controls the future, he revealed himself to Moses. But to us, we have no tree in the desert. We have an unusual tree in the shape of a cross staked into the ground outside of Jerusalem. It is here that God says, I will be in the middle of rebels and protect them from my holiness. It is here that God says, I will reveal myself. God reveals himself as redeemer. You can only find me here. No mystic pursuits, no journeys into the self. You will find me in the body of my son. John says, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son. God pitched his tent among us in the body of his Son. We beheld the cross, and what God says, this is your exodus, a greater glory than Moses saw that day. The same name, the same I am God, sovereign, the one who has sovereign sway over the future, this God comes to us as our Lord. He is sovereign over rebels. And he is merciful, and he's a merciful warrior on behalf of his people. How do you participate in this? The only way you can qualify is to cry. Cry like Israel of old because of your enslavements. Despair of yourself. Find yourself weak and heavy laden, and Christ promises to give you rest. You must acknowledge that you have not loved his name or even wanted to know it. You lived okay without it. You had no regard for it. He must reveal to you the sacredness of his name. He will teach you just how much you need his name to be revered and revealed to you. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He will teach you its sacredness and its goodness. He promises to take you into himself and start a process of extraordinary change. The bush Moses saw that day is now dust, but what you see will remain forever, and you will live forever. The one who, revealed, who reveals these things to us is Jesus Christ, and he, and we are becoming like him. He will not be a distant deity, but he, he by his spirit lives in us. Moses beheld the glory of the Lord. We are beholding, Paul told the Corinthians, the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Moses that day saw bright light and God revealed to Moses his plan to redeem. We are seeing a brighter light and a greater plan of redemption. Does your mind grasp this? Do you love this knowledge? Revelation, excuse me, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, 
but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. This is precious knowledge. This is the revelation of God coming through Christ to redeem us. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, we hear these sober, sobering words. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see his beauty? Do you see Christ as your redeemer? Does it move you? Do you love him? See, Moses really has a gospel. We often think of Moses as related to the law, and we rightly should think that way. But in many ways, Moses is now introducing them first and foremost to the God who will now reveal his gospel. He comes with, as a powerful redeemer. In Exodus 20, verse 1, before the law is even given, God says, I am the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before law, grace comes first. The gospel introduces us to this sovereign Lord who, who is about the details of our life. And we live in this soundbite culture where public discourse is shaped by short bits of information. No one, especially politicians, stay very long on a subject. They don't want to touch down on 12 convictions about this or that. They just touch down on a subject very quickly, lest, it, lest their whole world become too unstable and they have to explain things too deeply. And so they move quickly from soundbite to soundbite. What's hard about this task for us is that we have to move away from sound bites and we have to think deeply and, and law, and, and in a long way, uh, see its, its grandeur, see its panorama. We have to reflect on it. We have to be patient before this extraordinary cross and say, God, teach me. Help me stay here long. Teach me deeply. I want the story of the Exodus to be my story. How shall we respond to this? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that God owns you and he is going to shake up your life. He will not just touch down with a soundbite. He's coming after every aspect of you. He delivers the very bodies of those Israelites through the Red Sea and, in, and into the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. He's after every aspect of your life. Can we doubt God's goodness? Can we linger long in our response to this God? Is our response to God rather casual and sort of blasé? Does the fact that God has revealed his name to you blow you away? Does it do anything inside you? Has he made you feel and know the experience of his mercy toward you? And now that you know, what happens to you? What's it like to follow you? What happens inside you? He looked deeper into your condition than you ever did or ever will. He didn't give you a band-aid and wish you well. He gave you his son. As Israel of old cried out, we essentially can't cope with life. God knew what they needed. They needed the relief that can only come with him at the very center of their lives. And God will be there only if there is blood continually applied on behalf of sinners pictured in the, in the Passover lamb, pictured for us in the final Passover lamb. Deliverance will be costly. Jesus preaches to the heart, and he says to us, you cannot have two masters. Israel of old had, an, had a master that wanted to dominate them, 
and God would be their good and merciful master. Where is your heart? What owns you? Where your treasure is, our Lord said, there will your heart be also. What are you turning to? What thing of this world? What are you saying in your heart? Are you turning to some other savior? Only you can deliver me. Only through you can I cope with life. It is not only the addict or the alcoholic who cannot cope with life. None of us can cope with life. An expert on addiction, his name is Gerald May, has written a book called Addiction and Grace, and he says these remarkable words. I am not being flippant when I say that all of us suffer from addiction, nor am I reducing the meaning of addiction. I mean in all truth that the psychological, neurological, and spiritual dynamics of full-fledged addiction are actively at work within every human being. The same processes that are responsible for addiction to alcohol and narcotics, listen to this, are responsible for addiction to ideas, work, relationships, power, moods, fantasies, and an endless variety of other things. We are all addicts in every sense of the word. May you not be able to distance yourself from these people who are crying out, enslaved in in Egypt of old. Let us cry out to our God for deliverance. Egypt is in all of us. So let me close and point us to the Lord's Supper. Who would have thought that the most important place on earth that day would be found near an unknown mountain somewhere in the desert? Who would have thought? It happened. A patch of desert where no one normally travels. Where they crucified Jesus, they also dumped the city trash. No one visited that place because it was beautiful. Quite the opposite. You wanted to get out of there. Yet at the cross, God makes this most important place true and real and beautiful for us. It's a place where he reveals himself. And he will reveal himself only to those who cry out for mercy. The world doesn't notice these places and quickly moves on. But God, in his mercy, helps us see the ripple effects of these events. They are no small events. They're the biggest events in world history, and you can know them. As Moses saw something that drew him in and caused him to wonder, so God draws us in through this remarkable cross. What takes us back, what astonishes us, is that God shows us what is needed for us to be redeemed. What is needed is not just power and ability to rescue, but humility. God was unashamedly identified with a wandering people who really didn't want to know him. They were enslaved and broken, and he wanted them. The ultimate expression that our God is willing to identify with us is the incarnation. God wants us. He wants us with him. He's willing to redeem us. Redeeming humanity is a project worth undertaking. The I am of sovereign freedom moves into space and time and walks and enters not some ancient rebellious kingdom, though he did, but enters our lives and hearts where we have set up rival kingdoms to his kingdom. The fact is, we are not too bothered with what we have set up. We ask no questions. We are fine. We would like some temporary relief, but we do not want God. To reverse these distorted loves of our heart, God must come in humility and rescue us. Ultimately, he rescues us from ourselves. In many ways, we are like Israel of old. We only know our felt needs, and we are content to go no further. 
They rightly cried out under oppression, but we are like them in that we just want temporary relief and our true need is hidden from us. Israel of old could not have imagined that their true need was to worship the living God at at the foot of a mountain in the desert. No one was talking like that. Nor were any of us talking as we were raised in this world that we need a cross. It's just not how we think. God meets us in the wilderness place of the cross and shows us our true need. Our God is willing to come in humility and shine in glory, moving against our enemies, and we need our humanity restored. Who knew that? We didn't think that. Who knew we needed a cross? We didn't think that. Who who knew we needed to worship the true and living God? We didn't think that. God opens our eyes to our deep needs, Our Redeemer God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit meets us now today at this table. And he speaks right to the deepest needs that we could be aware of. He meets us today in what is common and and, and every day. He meets us in a meal. But it is not just any old meal. It's the meal of his redeeming love. He's given you revelation of his love. And he has moved way beyond your felt needs to your real needs. God, may God meet you again and again and again through his son, through this strange tree outside of Jerusalem. Find him there. He will not reveal himself in any other way. May he be the center of your life, and may your humanity be restored so that you have a soul that is burning with glorious love. And you're burning with the very holiness of God inside of you. And that you are being changed daily as you look upon the final Moses, Christ, who has delivered you and delivered you permanently, safely, forever and ever, delivered from your enemies. Let's pray. Father, you came with great humility, willing to send your son, unrecognized, You're a glorious God, and you're more clever than we ever imagined because you can outdo us. You can outthink us. You're wise beyond measure. And now we come to this sacred meal. We realize that we're not worthy of it in and of ourselves. We would have no interest in this unless you created it in us. So, Father, thank you that you are not ashamed of us, that you have brought us so close to you that we are part of Christ. He is the head. We are the body. You're not ashamed of us, God. And so now we enter this meal that you are not opposed to us, but we are friends. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your initiation. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you took the initiative and you came with great humility and great power and you were successful. You are the I am, the eternally sovereign one, the one who is free. You are the one who is free and we were enslaved and you came. We, we raise our voices to you, our praise, our thanksgiving to you. Help us remember Jesus and live in him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.